As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. It is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way that we live our lives? How many of us can say that we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestle alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what do these texts written over 2,000 years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions that we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Botsolis, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our life, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all of the saints who have come before us, may continue to make his path straight. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. My name is Nick Botsolis, and once again, I'm happy to have you all here with me on this, a Friday evening. Typically, we do these on Wednesdays, so for those of you wondering why the recording isn't out yet, it's because for the next three weeks, we're going to be putting recordings out on Saturdays. So, now that the business is kind of out of the way, we're on our way in St. Luke's Gospel account, to Jerusalem. Since about chapter 9, we've been going through the travel narrative of Christ, where he's been aiming single-mindedly towards Jerusalem, teaching through parables, yet the locus of his focus has literally been the city, where he's going to offer his life soon for the life of the world. And last week, we saw Christ enter Jericho, which is the lowest place outside of Jerusalem. So he's literally about to make his ascent. And it's going to be in Jericho that we pick up this week. So last week we had the blind man who was healed and recognized Jesus as being the Christ. Again, he played on that same motif that we saw before with the centurion because both of those characters recognize Jesus' actions to be more than just prophet or more than just a good teacher. Rather, they recognize the divinity behind all of his actions. So when the blind man last week proclaimed Jesus to be the Lord, he meant it. He gave him the title of God. And that's going to be something that we continue to see playing out in this week's chapter as we read about Zacchaeus here in the first section. And ultimately, we're going to see the full manifestation of this when Christ enters Jerusalem and then enters the temple at the end of the chapter. So with all that preamble out of the way, let's begin this week's session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study with chapter 19 of St. Luke's Gospel. Verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not, on account of the crowd, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for I must stay with you within your house today. So he made haste and came down, 
and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So again, we're in Jericho, and Jesus is passing through. And we're told that while he's there, there's this man named Zacchaeus, who's a chief tax collector and rich. So key details that we see here in verse 2. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. We've talked about the status of tax collectors before, but this is the bottom of the barrel. These are Jews who work for the Romans. They're not paid by the Romans, so the only way that they make money is by extorting it from their brothers, from their sisters, their fellow Jews. So where we see Zacchaeus as a chief tax collector, he's even worse than those people because he's in charge of other tax collectors. So the extortion goes up the chain to the point where we see he is rich. So it's not only that he's extorting, it's not only that he's a tax collector, but he's a chief tax collector who is also rich, meaning that he's a chief extortioner in a sense. And yet what we see in verse 3 is that he sought to see who Jesus was. So this is very important because, again, we're going to see later on with his reference to Jesus as the Lord there's a play here in words. It's not he's going to go see Jesus. He knows roughly who Jesus is from the fame that's continued to spread. Because again, that's a motif that we've seen over and over again in St. Luke's Gospel account. Jesus' fame spreading, and then the people in all of these neighboring towns and villages hearing of him and going to seek him. But here we see that he wants to see who Jesus was. So let's just remember that because that's going to be important as we move forward. But immediately after that, we hear, but he could not on account the crowd because he was small in stature. There's a lot of describing descriptive factors here at play. As we've seen with other characters within St. Luke's Gospel account, usually they're just introduced into the narrative. Usually they're identified by a title or some type of name and that's it. Yet here we see that Zacchaeus is not only a chief tax collector, but he's rich. Here we also see Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but he can't on account of his height. So there are a lot of details that are coming into play to show us the struggle that this man is going through. Because of his stature, he can't just go and see Jesus. He needs to go out of his comfort zone. He needs to do something extreme. And we see that because... He so desires to see who Jesus was that in verse 4 we see that he runs on ahead of the crowd and climbs up into a sycamore tree because he knew that Jesus was going to pass by that way. So in verse 5 we see when Jesus is coming by, what does he do? Well, he looks up into the tree. And when he looks up into that tree, he says Zacchaeus. So he identifies Zacchaeus by name. This is a key detail showing that Jesus knows him. Again, we've continued to see in St. Luke's Gospel account these subtle references to Jesus being God, to knowing the thoughts and the hearts of man. 
And here, he not only knows that this man is in the tree, but he knows him by name. And then he calls him by name. And when he calls him, Zacchaeus, he says, Make haste and come down, for I must stay at your house today. He asks Zacchaeus for hospitality. And in verse 6, what we see is immediately he makes haste, he comes down, and receives him joyfully. So it's not only that Zacchaeus is going out of his way to see who Jesus is, but when Jesus offers him the opportunity to host him in his home, he receives him joyfully in the same way that we're called to receive Christ joyfully. So as we're looking at Zacchaeus in this narrative, again, he's a character for us to be able to map onto, someone to resonate with in our interactions in relation to Christ. So we see in verse 7 that when they saw it, so that's the people in the crowd, because again, there's this large crowd that's been surrounding Jesus, they murmur and they question why Jesus has gone to be the guest with this man who is a sinner. We need to remember again how great of a sinner Zacchaeus is, a chief extortioner. He's taking money from his brothers and giving it to the Romans and also holding it for himself. And yet it's in the response of Zacchaeus here in verse 8 that we see the true repentance that's at play. Because it's not only that Zacchaeus received Jesus into his home joyfully, but in response to Jesus coming with him, Zacchaeus allowing Christ to dwell in his home, in his heart, we hear him say, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So with giving half of his goods to the poor, what do we see? Well, we see that motif that's been playing out over and over again within St. Luke's Gospel. St. Luke makes an emphasis on material wealth. And yet, we know from reading his Gospel that he's not only speaking of material wealth. Yet the emphasis still lies on what you're to do with the physical goods that you have. And St. Luke has made this point time and time again that our goods are a gift given to us by God. So what are we supposed to do with any excess that we have? Well, we're supposed to use that excess. We're supposed to use all of the gifts, all the talents, everything that's given to us to the glory of God in ministry. So when he says he's going to take half of what he has and give it to the poor, well, that's what's at play here. He's using the gifts that he's been given to be able to engage in this ministry, to live this life in Christ. But then what happens afterwards? Well, he recognizes his sin. It's not enough for him to just recognize his sin and say, oh, I'm sorry, Jesus, I did some bad stuff to people. Rather, we see that he takes action. He's going to set out and repay all of the people who he's defrauded fourfold. So that should be a reminder to us about what we're supposed to do when it comes to sin. Sins aren't actions that happen within a vacuum. Is every action that we commit in the world has a cascading effect of reactions. So whenever we act either positively or negatively, if we're going to try to use that prism, well, a bunch of ripple effects take a place. So what Zacchaeus is doing here is identifying the reality of his actions. 
And instead of just saying, oh, I'm sorry, everyone, I'm now following Jesus, what's he doing? Well, he's taking action in reorienting his life. He's reorienting his life through ministry, as we see with him giving half of what he has to the poor. Hypothetically speaking, he hasn't defrauded any of the poor because they don't have any money for him to take. So that's what he's doing in giving the poor his money. But then he's also taking action in repenting of all of the wrong he's done to his brothers and sisters. And that's important because we see here in verse 9, Jesus says to him, Today salvation has come to your, this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So Zacchaeus was lost. He was lost to sin. He was living a life totally other to his fellow Jews. And yet Christ has come, the Son of Man, again this title is being used from Daniel, has come to seek and to save the lost, to offer them the possibility of repentance. And it's for this reason that Zacchaeus is now received joyfully because he's a son of Abraham. And being a son of Abraham, there's a promise associated with that if we go all the way back to Genesis. And that promise is to be an inheritor of the kingdom of God, be an inheritor of the gifts that God is offering us. Now, fast forward to us here in the 21st century, all of us who are Christians, we are also children of Abraham. We are also children who are granted this inheritance. Why? Is role one in Christ. So what we see here is the path for salvation is open to everyone, regardless of how far gone you might be. Zacchaeus in this entire narrative is depicted as this chief sinner. He, for all intents and purposes, is the worst of the worst. You can't get any worse than him. And we see that just by his title alone. And yet, what do we see? When he hears Jesus is coming through, there's this yearning. And rather than sitting back in his house and having the people under him go ask Jesus to come to his home, he goes on alone. He struggles. Because he's short. He can't see Jesus because of the crowd. He has to climb a tree and sit up there and peer through to be able to see Jesus. But then when Jesus sees him, what happens? He asks to dwell in his home. He asks Zacchaeus to receive him, and Zacchaeus receives him joyfully. It's not enough for Zacchaeus to just receive Christ and say, oh, this is great, I have my personal relationship with Jesus. No, there's work that he needs to do. And so in doing that work, he continues the ministry that Christ has been doing. Because again, we're all the body of Christ. That's the point of us being members of the body. We all have work to do. Because as we look around at the world surrounding us, there's no shortage of struggle. There's no shortage of people who need our help. And so Zacchaeus sets out to help the poor. That's just the example that we have here. But in addition to helping the poor, Zacchaeus sets out to right the wrongs that he himself has done. Because if he's not going to do that, he's just going to move on his merry way like there's nothing wrong, well then he's missing the consequences for his actions. Those people who he's wronged, he's hurt. Those people who he's wronged, 
he's taken money from and left in compromised situations. So before he can set off on his mission, before he can set off in this discipleship that we're seeing, what does he need to do? He needs to fix what he's capable of fixing that he broke in the first place, offering it up to Christ and ultimately allowing for him to transform it. We can't always fix situations. Sometimes when we sin, we don't know the ramifications of our action. And yet, all of us are called to ask Christ to fill in those gaps. All of us are called to allow for Christ to pick up where we're lacking. Because we can't take in every factor of what we do. There are sometimes too many variables for us to track. And if we're trying to track every variable of our life, we're going to go crazy. But we need to look at what's in the here and now. We need to look at the things that are right in front of us. Because if we take a hard look at our life, we'll see that none of us, myself included, have a shortage of sinful actions that we do on a daily basis. But the point of being a Christian is that we're constantly repenting and we're constantly reorienting our life. And that requires us to be humble because it's from that place of humility that we're able to then take those steps forward and see where it is that Christ is calling us to go in life, what it is that he's calling us to do, and how it is we're supposed to go about doing that. So we need to have the humility of Zacchaeus. We need to have the love of Zacchaeus. But we also need to take action at a certain point, like Zacchaeus. So that way we can truly be inheritors of the kingdom. So moving on to verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten pounds and said to them, Trade with these till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent an emissary after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by trading. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your pound has made ten pounds more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your pound has made five pounds. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your pound, which I kept laid away in the napkin. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take up what you did not lay down, and reap what you do not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you out of your own mouth. You wicked servant, you knew that I was a severe man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money into a bank? At my coming, I may have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, 
Take the pound from him, and give it to him who has the ten pounds. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten pounds. And I tell you, that to every one who has will more be given. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them before me. So as Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, we see that he is triggered to give another parable. And the reason for this, the catalyst for this, is that there are some around him who suppose the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. This is a flashback again to what we've spoken of in prior sections about individuals believing the Messiah was going to be this earthly liberator. The Messiah was going to be this liberator who's going to come in and free the Jews from their Roman oppressors. So when the people are thinking that he's going to enter Jerusalem and bring the kingdom of God immediately, well, that's what they believe he's going to take have take place. And as we read through the parable, maybe you're starting to pick out why this response makes sense. Because what Christ uses in terms of terminology here is military language. He's talking about a ruler who goes off into a foreign land to receive a kingdom. You don't receive a kingdom unless you conquer a kingdom. So he's a conqueror. And what happens? Well, when he comes back, he continues to conquer. He continues the rule. And yet we see some key details here. Well, this nobleman is gone. What happens? Well, the people call together an emissary. So they send people out to him to basically say, hey, we don't want you ruling over us. Stay in that foreign land, receive that kingdom. Don't come back. And before he goes, what does he do? Well, he calls ten servants to him. And again, the title is important here. If they are servants, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to serve. So he gives them provisions. He gives them a pound each this small sum of money, and he charges them to do trade with it while he's gone. And so he goes off into the foreign land to receive his kingdom. The people say, all right, we don't want you here. So they send their emissary over and they tell him that. And yet when he returns, he calls his servants to him. They have a role to play within his kingdom. Whether they want him to rule over them or not, that's just the situation they're in. And so you have the first of the three that are highlighted here, even though there were ten expressed. This is kind of where we see St. Luke harmonizing with St. Matthew, because even though St. Luke identifies the ten servants, we see the three are the ones who are made an example of. And so when the first one comes to him, he says, Lord, okay, here you go. I did trade with your pound, and now I have ten more. And that translates into how many kingdoms, how many cities, rather, this man is given charge over. Kind of an unexpected twist of events, but it's because the servant was faithful in the little that he was given, Again, we're not talking about a lot of money here. We're talking about a pound. But because he was faithful, it multiplied the gift that he was given and then presented it back to his master. 
But what happens? He's given even greater authority. He's given even greater responsibility in a sense. Because now he's called to rule over ten cities. Before he just had a pound. That would be the equivalent of us having a dollar and saying, okay, what am I supposed to do with this? Well, then imagine if the king comes back and says to you, okay, you gave me ten dollars. Yeah, now you're in charge of this whole city. That'd be a pretty big change of events. But we need to look at the responsibility associated with that. He's a servant. So his job was to care for the affairs of his master. And that now continues, but it takes an even larger scale. Because he's not just in charge of doing trade any longer. He's in charge of a whole people group. Ten whole people groups in this context. And then we see the same thing happen with the second example. He makes five, he presents the five, and so he's given authority, he's given charge over five cities. But then we get to the third. And the third says that he laid his pound up in the napkin. So he tied it up, he hid it away. He was given this gift, he was given this pound, and what does he do with it? Well, he hides it. And the reason for that is he says, I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take up what you do not lay down and you reap what you do not sow. So he fears this man. He's given charge. He's called to be a servant. And yeah, to give him his due, he does return. He faces this ruler when he returns and gives him back his pound. And yet, we see in verse 22, the rulers say, I will condemn you out of your own mouth, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking up what I do not lay down and reaping what I do not sow. Why then did you not put my, pound, my money into the bank, and at my coming I should receive it with its interest? So what do we see here? Well, we see that the servant knows the consequences of his action. We're not talking about a passive character here. We're talking about someone who's very much so aware of what is going to happen to him if he misuses the pound that was entrusted to him. And so when we see the result, the condemnation of the ruler isn't something that just comes out of nowhere. He's not this vengeful, vindictive person in this context. Rather, this man is suffering from the reality of his action, a reality that he was conscious of. So he consciously hid the money away. He consciously rejected the charge he was given. And he consciously now presents the money that he hid away to this ruler when he returns. And then he's puzzled because he's receiving his reward. This is the reality of actions. Again, as we talked about last time, our actions have consequences. And when we're conscious of our actions, as this man is, well, we shouldn't be puzzled when we have to suffer the ramifications for those actions. And yet, what do we see here? Well, we see that even though this man didn't even do the slightest thing that he could have done, he could have put that pound away in the bank to let it gain interest. He was charged to multiply it. He was charged to do that with trade. 
He neglected the kingdom that he was in charge over. He neglected the responsibility that came with what was entrusted to him, that gift. And we see, because of that, the ruler says to those who are standing by, take the pound from him and give it to him who has the ten pounds. And then in verse 25, we see that the people question. They say, Lord, he has ten pounds already. Why are you going to give this money to this person who already has so much? And yet we hear in verse 26, these lines, I tell you that to everyone who has will more be given, but from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So what does this mean? Well, we need to remember the responsibility that comes along with the gifts that have been given to these servants. The one who has 10? Well, what's his responsibility now? It's to be in charge of 10 cities. It's to minister to 10 cities. And because he's able to do that, what does he show this master? Well, he shows him that if he's able to take on this great task, well, he can add more to the pile. We get hung up on the money and the resentment of others who have more than us, and then we miss the responsibility that comes along for that ride. Yes, we can misuse the gifts that we're given, but at the end of the day, God is the only judge of those actions because he's the only one that entrusts these gifts to us. Yes, it's our call as individuals to be able to multiply those gifts and use them to the glory of God, but we need to also remember the responsibility that comes along with those gifts. If you look at people who have a lot of responsibilities in life, chances are they're people who continue to have even more piled on them. And the reason typically for that is because, okay, if you're looking around and you're trying to entrust someone with something, well, I'd rather go to the person who already has a track record of living up to that expectation than try to go through the unknown of presenting somebody who doesn't have that track record with this opportunity. And that's what you see playing out here. Well, you see the servant, because they're all servants, they're all of equal status. They were all given the same amount of money. And yet the one who multiplied his gift to this great extent, bringing back 10, well, what does he receive? Well, he receives this greater responsibility. And then after the first, the third one rather, who rejected the gift, who hid the gift away and decided not to multiply it and live up to that task, well, what happens? Well, the ruler then turns to the one who multiplied this gift, this great proportion, and he says, here you go. You have even more responsibility. So that's important for us to realize because that's how our salvation is carried out. We're all given gifts, and we're called to live up to those gifts. We're called to multiply those gifts. And we all have different things put on our plate. Some of us suffer more. Some of us struggle more than others. If we look at our tradition, there's no shortage of that whatsoever. If we look at the martyrs and the saints. And yet, 
what separates those people from everyone else is their continued long-suffering, is the continuation of them carrying their cross and giving glory to God in all of their actions. If we're called to multiply our gifts, well, then the example that we have is that we need to live up to is, well, both of these two servants before the one who squandered his gift. Because even though the one in the middle, the second servant, doesn't have as much of an increase as the first example, well, he's still given charge over what he was capable of. He's still given the responsibility over the people he is capable of serving, of looking over. And he's still a servant. He's still given an equal responsibility. He's given an equal status, rather. And yet, what happens to the one who squandered everything? Well, him, along with all of the people who rejected their ruler altogether, well, they're taken out and they're slain. Again, if we're looking at this within the context that was set up in the very beginning of the section where there were some of those people there who believed the kingdom of God was going to come immediately, well, why is this the example? because Christ isn't going to come and slay the Romans and free the Jews. Rather, Christ is going to come into Jerusalem in this next section to offer all of us the opportunity of true liberation. But what's going to happen if we reject him permanently? What's going to happen if we spend the whole of our life saying, no, Christ, you've given us all these opportunities. I'm not going to multiply my gift. I'm not going to have this life in you. Well, then our experience of God is going to be harsh. Our experience of God is going to be vengeance. Our experience of God will be all of these things that we hear in the Old Testament that confuse us. But that's not because God is spiteful. That's not because God's going out of his way to wreak vengeance and havoc on our lives. It's because when we reject God and live lives that are diametrically opposed to the one that he's calling us to live, well, when we experience his love, it feels to us like vengeance. When we're in the presence of his light, we experience it as a burning fire rather than eternal joy. But that's not because God is going out of his way to vindicate himself. That's not because God is going out of his way to wreak his vengeance and smite us out of some disdain or hatred is because we've gone out of our way to reject his joy. And yet, since he's God, the creator of all, when he offers that joy to us without any separation, and we have to experience the totality of that, if we've spent the whole of our existence running in the opposite direction, well, what's going to be that result? So we're called to live lives that are congruent with this life in Christ. We're called to live lives centered in him and his saving works. So that way we can journey towards the kingdom, multiplying the gifts that have been entrusted to each and every one of us. And for those of us who know this responsibility, those of us who are conscious of this responsibility, well then the bar is set even higher. Because if we're conscious of these things, if we call ourselves followers of Christ, Christians, well then it's our responsibility 
to discern how he's calling us to live through the totality of our life. It's our responsibility to always have a spirit of repentance and reorientation towards him when we step off track. It's our responsibility at the end of the day to give glory to him in everything that we do. So moving on to verse 28. And when he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite, where, uh, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say thus, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their garments on the colt, they set Jesus upon it. And as he rode along, they spread their garments on the road. As he was now drawing near at the distance of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So here we see the end of the travel narrative. Jesus has approached Jerusalem, and as he's making his way towards the, uh, the kingdom, the city, he goes to the Mount of Olives, the very place where he's soon going to be betray betrayed. And he sends two of his disciples out, saying to them, go into the village opposite, where when you enter, you'll find a colt tide on which no one has ever sat yet. And what this is in reference to is the messianic prophecy of the coming of the Messiah that we see in Zechariah 9.9. And quickly to read that, we hear in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice gratefully, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So what do we see here? We see a messianic prophecy taking place. And so Jesus also adds a prophecy in here. He tells the disciples that well they go, they're going to have people come up to them and ask them, why are you taking this donkey? And they're to tell them that the Lord has need of it. And then it's so. But again, when we see the Lord here, there's a reason why it's in all caps. It's because, again, that's the name of God in the Old Testament. So even though the disciples, when they go and they say the Lord have, has need of it, they don't fully grasp what they're saying. They don't fully grasp what this means. They think maybe he's just a ruler, he's the Messiah, what have you. We see this revelation being presented to us by St. Luke in his gospel account. Because when the people are going to receive him joyfully, they're going to receive him as this messianic king. 
but they're not going to fully grasp what that means. If we go all the way back to the beginning of the last section, when we saw the people expecting the kingdom of God to appear immediately, what was it? They're in anticipation of. They're in anticipation of their liberation from the Romans. And yet, the liberation that's being offered to them is the liberation of God to his people from the bonds of sin and death. Something even greater than we could have ever expected. And so what do we see here? What we see in verse 35, when they bring Jesus the donkey, the colt, they throw their garments on the colt and set Jesus upon it. Now, where we see the garments being cast onto the colt, there's a few things happening here. One, he's they're preparing the donkey for them. But Blessed Theophylact, in his commentary on St. Luke's Gospel, tells us that the casting off of garments is very similar to the garments of flesh, which is a motif that you see playing over and over again within the Old Testament. And so the first root of that that we see is within the fall of humanity. So when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, they put on garments, these garments of flesh. So what the garment symbolizes is being beholden to the things of this age. And the reason for that is what do we see with Adam and Eve? Well, when they're in the garden before they fell, they're naked. But when they fell, God has to knit together garments for them to go with their garments of skin that they put on. They're now living for this age rather than being participants in the age that has now come in Christ. So when we see the disciples casting their garments on the donkey before Christ, and then we see them again casting the garments before him as he's marching towards Jerusalem, that's what this is symbolic of. It's symbolic of those who are receiving Christ, casting off the things of this age, and receiving the kingdom of the age that has come. And that's one of the reasons why you don't have the palm leaves and all of the other things that are associated with the entrance in Jerusalem. What St. Luke is focusing on here is the garments of skin. What St. Luke is focusing on here is the repentance of the people as they receive their king. And within verse uh, 38, we see, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So we see this cry from the disciples as he's marching in. And this is reference to two psalms from the book of Psalms. We see also just a general greeting of people who would be coming into Jerusalem at play here. But if we understand the greater picture of what's happening, if we understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, and he's come to liberate us from sin and death, well, what do we see? We see that there's this fulfillment at play. Because within these two verses that we have here, we see the disciples actually making a very similar cry to what we saw way back in chapter 2 of St. Luke's Gospel. Because when the angels appeared to the shepherds, something very similar that we hear within their cry. In fact, we hear in verse 14 of the second chapter, Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. 
So here's the fulfillment of even that prophecy. Here's the fulfillment of the words of the psalmist. It is Christ marching into Jerusalem to begin the Holy Week, to begin his journey towards the cross, where he will offer his life for the life of the world. And so this is just an example of how the Gospels are so hyperlinked with the broader text and tradition of the Church and of the New and Old Testament. Because we don't only have two references to two separate psalms playing here, we also have this reference to the very beginning of St. Luke's Gospel account, ultimately pointing us towards the central motion of salvation history. Because if we look at the epistles that are written after the time of the gospel, and if we look at the Old Testament, which is before, well, all roads are leading towards this central point. All roads are leading towards Christ and the fulfillment that he carries out by offering his life for the life of the world as the only sinless one who, in the words of St. Paul, becomes sin for us. He becomes an offering for us. So if Christ goes and offers his life for the life of the world as being the only sinless one, well, what happens? He's a pure offering. He's a perfect, spotless offering. And if that's the case, since, again, he's God, but what happens when he enters into death? As we've mentioned before, there's no equation for God dying. God is the creator of all. God is the only sinless one. And so when he enters into death, death itself is evaporated. It's transfigured. And that's why we receive new life. That's why there's this resurrection of both soul and body. The human person is returned, even though the human person fell into corruption and death. Because all is reformed in Christ. All is transfigured in Christ. And this is what is happening as he's making his entry into Jerusalem. All roads have been leading towards this point. And now this point is being overflowing. And yet the Pharisees, they still don't understand. And in fact, this is going to be one of the last references that we see to the Pharisees within St. Luke's Gospel account. Because they say, okay, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Don't let them cry out in this way. And there's a few things at play here. First, we can see them as being jealous of Christ, as we've seen before. But they also have a genuine fear. Because if the people are referring to Jesus as this messianic king, and now they're walking into Roman territory, well, what's going to happen? Well, the fear is that there's going to be another insurrection attempt. Because there have been plenty of Christ, plenty of messiahs before Jesus. And all of them have been stamped out violently by the Roman oppressors. And so that's something that's at play here. There's this fear that, okay, the Romans are going to come in and stamp this out. And yet in verse 40, we hear Jesus say, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. In the same way that when Christ dies on the cross, we see the whole of creation cry out and react to this act. Well, we see that this is what's at play here. The heavens initially cried out when the Messiah was born, all the way back in verse 14 of the second chapter, when the angels appeared 
and told the shepherds of what had happened. Glory to God in the highest, and earth peace of goodwill among men whom I'm pleased. And here the people are making the same cry. And here Jesus says all of creation is making that same cry and would be verbally articulating that cry if these people were silenced. And it's that same cry that we'll see when he offers his life for the life of the world, when the skies turn black, when the earth shakes at his death. Because all of creation, the words of St. John Damascus, is crying out for its creator. All of creation is intended to be oriented towards the central point. It's our responsibility as ministers to that creation to ensue that our life is oriented in that direction. And subsequently, the whole of creation is brought along for that journey. So we need to understand the magnitude of what's happening here in this triumphal entry. Christ is about to offer his life for the life of the world, which will transfigure death, trampling it down by itself. And it's this very action that begins here with what we know as, in our tradition, the beginning of Holy Week, Palm Sunday, the entrance of Christ into the temple. And so from here on out, we're going to be moving towards the crucifixion. From here on out, there's going to be this added tension and lack of time within Jesus' parables because everything is now aiming towards the central direction. The Christ has now returned to the temple. The Spirit of God is about to dwell in the temple proper again, something that has not been the case since the temple was destroyed in the first temple period right before the Babylonian exile. So moving on to verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that even today you knew the things that make for peace, but now they are hid from your eyes. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will cast up a bank about you and surround you and hem you in on every side and dash you to the ground you and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation so we see that as jesus is entering the city he sees it and he weeps over it and he says would that even today you knew the things that make for peace but now they're hid from your eyes So what's he highlighting here? Well, he's highlighting the blindness of the people. He is the bringer of peace. He is the Messiah that has been promised. And yet, the people are not going to recognize him. The people are not going to recognize the signs of the times fully. And yet, all of this happens for a reason. We see that it's hid from their eyes. But what is it that's hiding this reality? Well, it's their inability to perceive as a result of living for themselves, living for the things of this age. And so when the people are living for their own presuppositions of what's supposed to be going on around them, well, what happens? They don't see the Messiah 
They don't cry out in the same way the disciples are here. And even the disciples aren't innocent of this blindness because they don't fully grasp what it is that's about to happen. Even the apostles who are in the inner circle of the disciples, they don't grasp what's happening. And Jesus has told them three times explicitly of what's about to transpire. And so we see from this hardening of heart, this blinding, that there are things that are coming. There are real consequences for our actions. Because we see Jesus say in verse 43, For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will cast up a bank about you and surround you and hem you in on every side and dash you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And what we see here is a direct reference to the leveling of the city that takes place in 132 AD. So during this insurrection, after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, we see the Romans level up levies around the city to lay siege. And then when they finally enter the city and take it over, they level it to the ground. They literally take up the mountain that Jerusalem was built upon and they make it a flat place, utterly destroying the place. And within history, what do we see? Well, it's the people that fled this calamity that survived. It's the people that saw the signs of the time and got out like Lot when he leaves Sodom and Gomorrah. Those are the ones who survive this overall calamity. And yet what we see here is that there are going to be people who are blind to this reality. They're going to be blind to the things that are about to come because they, like the people in the example that we talked about way back in chapter 17, are marrying and giving in marriage. They're living their life as they normally do. And in doing that, they're neglecting the shifting tide. They're neglecting that the very foundation of their civilization is corroded from under them. They have this veneer of normalcy, and yet they're missing what is coming right around the corner. And so what we see here is not only a prophecy of something that's going to come later on, at a fixed time in history, but again, whenever we're talking about eschatology, the study of the end times, well, what do we need to realize? Well, there's kind of three layers to it. Yeah, we have a historical calamity that has happened. And yeah, there's always going to be this present calamity that we're dealing with in our very life. But then there's always going to be that future calamity that's on the horizon. And we need to factor in all three whenever we're thinking about these things. Because oftentimes people pull up books like the book of Revelation and they say, well, this is a study of exactly what's going to happen at the end of days. And I can pinpoint the exact dates and times based off of whatever codes I'm reading out of this text. But that's not the case at all if we understand our interpretation of eschatology. Because there's always been a calamity. There's always going to be a present calamity that we're dealing with. And yeah, there's going to be a fulfillment. There's always going to be this overall calamity of this age. But we need to, again, remember what this age is made out of. This age is made out of sin and death. So when Christ dies, 
and raises from the dead, well, that's an icon of what the apocalypse actually looks like. It's not the destruction of this world and burning it all to the ground so that way a new world can come. Rather, that's how sin experiences this transfiguration. That's how death experiences this rebirth. Because what was distortion has become our new normal. We weren't intended to die. We weren't intended to suffer. And yet, because of our actions, in the same way that these people who get stuck in the city, well, what's the result? The result is that we experience death. The result is that we experience these sufferings. But that's not the overall plan. That's why Christ came into the world. So we, we could be offered eternity in him, an eternity that we're all going to receive whether we want to or not. Because as I spoke of a couple of weeks ago, if we look at the resurrection icon where Christ is pulling up Adam and Eve, he's pulling them up by the wrist. He's not pulling them up by the hand. They can't let go. And that's symbolic of humanity, masculine and feminine, being pulled into the kingdom, being liberated from death. Because what do we also see in that icon? Well, we see the only thing that's left behind there is bones and chains. There's no people left. All of the people are raised. All of the people are brought back into their intended state. And the only way to stay there the only way to be in darkness when that eternal light is there is if we utterly reject that light. And even then, we're being brought along for that ride. Even then, we still need to experience Christ. So I think it's important for us to realize this, that the world around us is constantly shifting. And yet, in the same vein, there's also never anything new under the sun. Because history has these continual ebbs and flows. Empires rise, empires fall. And every single time an empire falls, people think that's the end of history. And yet, what's the track record tell us? Well, the track record tells us that things continue on. And things are going to continue until everything is fulfilled. And what I mean by that is things are going to continue on until the totality of humanity that could possibly come into the world and receive Christ has. Because we're all numbered in his book of life. We're all accounted for from our mother's womb. And we're all held to the same dignity in Christ. So if that's the case, well, what's he continuing to do for us? Well, he's continuing to reach out. He's continuing to call us so that we can obtain life in him. But we have a choice. We have free will. Because we're not robots. We're free in this. So our choice is, well, will we receive Christ and continue to do what he's calling us to do? Or will we reject him and still be brought along for that ride, but this time we're going kicking and screaming? And then we're going to continue to experience it in that way if that's the life that we're living today. Because there are very tangible things that we can do. We're called to be servants. And the way that that servant mentality manifests itself is different. Because it reveals itself to us in different ways, depending on who we are and how we live. 
And it's up to us as individuals who are aiming towards this life in Christ or trying to live this life in Christ to humble ourselves so that way we can see how it is that he's calling us to live and what it is that he's calling us to do. So that way all of us together as the body of Christ can move into the kingdom as one. So moving on to the final section of this week's chapter with verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people sought to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do. For all the people hung upon his every word. So the first place that Jesus stops when he enters the city is the temple proper. And as I mentioned earlier, this is the return of the Spirit of God to the temple. If we go all the way back to the first chapter of St. Luke's Gospel, when Zechariah enters the temple and then he sees in the Holy of Holies the angel, well, remember, he's confused. The reason why he's confused is because there hasn't been anything in there since the destruction of the first temple, since the Babylonian exile. So when he walks into the temple and he sees this angel standing in there, well, he's not only filled with the normal fear that people have when they come into contact with angels, but he's also very puzzled because he's like, well, what's going on here? Why is there something here where there shouldn't be? So that's our reminder of this reality that we already saw in St. Luke's Gospel. And yet, here we see the Spirit of God has returned in the flesh. Because God, incarnate, has now entered the temple. And what's the first thing that he does? Well, we see that he begins to drive out those who sold, those who are living for mammon. And the reason for that is, in verse 46, he states, is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So what's he saying? He's making a radical shift here. He's showing them, hey, the intended purpose of the temple is not to be buying and selling and doing commerce. You have plenty of space for that in the city. The purpose for the temple is to draw near to God, to pray, to build this relationship with him. And yet, what do we see? Well, we see Jesus continues to make that manifest to the people. Because after he drives out these people who are buying and selling, well, he begins to teach daily in the temple. And we see at the very end that the people hung upon his words. So those who are entering the temple with this pure purpose, with this desire to know, love, and serve God, what are they doing? They're hanging upon his every word. They're drawing near to him. There's this very close relationship that begins to take place. And yet, we see with the introduction of the chief priests, characters we haven't seen before in St. Luke's Gospel account, that they, along with the scribes and the principal men of the people, from that moment on sought to destroy Jesus. If we remember from St. Mark's Gospel, this happened very early on. So it's very easy for us to try to take for granted a lot of these details. But in St. Luke's Gospel, we see that it's not until Jesus has entered the temple that the leaders of the people decide it's time to destroy him, time to get rid of him. Up until this point, we've seen the scribes and the Pharisees 
sitting and having dialogue with Jesus. They're testing him, but they're not trying to find a way to kill him. And yet there's a shift here. And the shift takes place because Jesus has shown his authority and compared his authority to the authority of the rulers. The rulers were content with the status quo. The rulers were content with people buying and selling and doing all this commerce in the temple. Why? Because it just became a house to them at that point. There's no physical spirit of God in the temple anymore, so there's nothing that's visually calling them towards this higher calling. Rather, they're just kind of going through these motions. They're engaging in their ritual practices. The reason why there are people buying in the temple is because, well, you need to be able to make a sacrifice, and what are you going to do during your pilgrimage? Bring your goat with you? No, it's easier for you to go buy a goat here. So there's a practical reason why. But what we see in Jesus driving these people out is that they're missing the why behind their actions. Everything that they're supposed to be doing is within the spirit of prayer. Because my house, he states, is to be a house of prayer. And yet, what's happened? That house has been made a den of robbers. And these robbers, well, what happens? These robbers have their hearts hardened. Rather than seeing the true joy that's in front of them with the return of God to the temple, something that they've been hoping for this entire time, is all the different religious groups that we've been talking about throughout St. Luke's Gospel, well, they all have different theories of how they're going to return the Spirit of God to the temple. And yet, what happened? None of them were right. Is God has returned at the time that he deemed necessary. And that wasn't through the actions of the Pharisees carrying out purity rituals. That wasn't through the actions of any of these other groups. Rather, it was because this is the time that God has deemed to reveal himself to his creation. And yet, instead of embracing this reality, we see there's a split. We see the leaders that is part of humanity become hardened. And they set out to kill Jesus. But we also see at the very end that they're unable to do it at this time because there are these people who receive him freely and cling to him. We're called to have the same disposition in our life. We're called to cling to Christ in all aspects of our life. Because he is the only arbiter of truth. Because within our tradition... Truth isn't just some concept. Truth is a person. And the only way that we kind of wrap our heads around what that means is by building a relationship with that person, by growing and participating in the tradition of our church. Because as we continually humble ourselves, these revelations manifest themselves to us. But the reality is that these revelations aren't something that come from the back of our mind that we can pride ourselves on. Because everything that is revealed to us is given to us by God. Everything that is revealed to us is given to us as a gift. And as we've talked about with physical wealth throughout St. Luke's Gospel account, whenever a gift is being given, well, it's our responsibility to multiply that gift and share that gift. 
to be good stewards of that gift. So whenever we think that we have authority, we need to realize, well, where does that authority come from? Whenever we think we have status, we have to ask ourselves, well, who bestowed upon us this status? Whenever we're given wealth, we need to ask ourselves, who gave us this gift? And how is he calling us to use it? Because nothing happens in a vacuum. Everything is given to us by God. Nothing is created by us and by our hands, ultimately speaking. And yet the Pharisees, well, rather, the chief priests and the scribes in this example, and the men of renown within that city, well, what do they do? Well, when they see Christ threaten their authority, they double down. When they see the foundation of their concept of how the world is supposed to work shaken, they give in the dissonance. And the end result of that is going to be them crucifying Christ. But we need to realize that when all of the people offer up Jesus, that's not just a historical event that happened back in 2000, back 2030-something years ago. Rather, that's something that we do every day when we reject him. Because even though we'll hear the Jews cry, may his blood be upon us and on our children, and that could be seen as some curse because he was justified, he was the only righteous one, and they are guilty of slaying and spilling righteous blood. Well, what happens? Christ's blood purifies. So what could be interpreted as a curse becomes liberation. That's why we commune in Christ's body and blood within our tradition. It's not because we're a bunch of cannibals. It's because we are truly allowing for him to dwell in us and purify us. So we're aiming towards this life in Christ. We're aiming towards humbling ourselves that way we can freely allow for him to manifest himself through us. Because it's going to be through this co-working that we live up to what Christ is calling us to do. Yet that requires us to humble ourselves constantly. That requires us to find the spirit of repentance. Because when we do, well then the doors open to us to see the true depth of reality that's been surrounding us. Because if we only live for you know, our perception of the world, well, we realize that the world's pretty small. We realize that our perceptions can only go so far. But if we strive to live lives centered in the truth that's revealed to us by Christ, well, then we'll find the depth of that knowledge doesn't have a bottom because it's not rooted in us. It's not rooted in our experiences. It's not rooted in something that's hollow and that will fade with time. Rather, it's rooted in someone who is offering for us to enter into a loving relationship with him, so much so that he has offered his life for us freely, so that we can do the same in the way that we live our life as we journey towards him. So thank you all for listening to the session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. Until next time, I'll talk to you all later. Thank you all for listening to the session of Make His Path Straight, a St. John the Baptist Bible study. 
Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming week, I invite you to take some time to read over the text we have just delved into, to see for yourself the depth of meaning that can be presented to us. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for the study, links to the full list of pertinent books can be found in the description of the session. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in the Bible study, the scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live a life that Christ calls us to live in the scriptures, I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End each Sunday for Orthros starting around 8.30 a.m. and the Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, no worry. I've also linked in the bio the directory of Greek Orthodox churches as a resource so that you can find Orthodox churches near you. As always, thank you for listening, and may St. John the Forerunner give us strength as we all set out to draw near to Christ and make his path straight. Amen.